To ship, of course. Welcome all, it's time for the ship show where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm Paul Reed, your host, Sober Build Eng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. Uh, tonight, my esteemed co-hosts are... Yusuf, uh, at BuildScientist on Twitter and uh, BuildScientist.com. And this is Seth Thomas, uh, at CheesePlus on Twitter. How was your guys' week? Interesting. <laughs> uh, we had a, we had a very I had a very interesting issue where uh, where Chef decided to lock me out of all of or not all of I would say half of the machines in my colo. Um, that was that was very fun. That's an oops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huh. Well, our topic for episode three: uh, How do you go about hiring the best people for your release engineering and DevOps teams? We're going to talk about various techniques for interviewing and hiring great build engineers, and what you should be looking for in those roles, as well as some red flags that, with the uh, perspective of hindsight, we all should have seen. But let's start as we always do with our news and views segment. It was interesting. We read an article this week about Rim announcing that the uh, BlackBerry 10 was going to be delayed. The interesting part here was that the CEO in the earnings call actually discussed some uh, nuts and bolts mechanics of source control. He was saying that the uh, reason for the delay was that they had put everything into the main trunk line, and then when they went to do the integration, it, it kind of fell apart. Did you guys see this article? Yeah, I, you know, Paul, it's, it's, I, I, I read it, and the thing that kind of strikes me as odd is <clears throat> I was kind of wondering, I mean, are they doing any kind of continuous integration? Uh, I, I mean, I, I couldn't really tell what their code line policy was, um, but it sounded to me that everybody's kind of working off of these long branches, and uh, or branches with a, with a fairly long lifespan, and then integrating back into, uh, into trunk um, kind of after, uh, after their, their code complete. Which to me seems a little, little odd, but well, you know, it is interesting. I mean, there it's very short on details, so it's hard to tell, you know, what their policy was or what they were even trying to do. I think what I find most interesting about this is that it's an earnings call. It's a shareholder earnings call, and they're talking about well, we checked everything into trunk. It's interesting to just see someone <laughs> talk about that. You know, I have mixed feelings on it because it seems like it's. Someone to blame, I, you know. I, I can't also see like so when he's when he's saying this though he says uh, we we put them all into trunk and then when we went to go build the first release. So are they inferring that they actually built all of these features like independent moving parts of the software without actually building it? And I don't think so. I think that when I read it, it seems like he just said the wrong thing because that doesn't really make because his his actual statement doesn't really make sense if they put them all into trunk. Then they would have had to been dealing with each other's code, and it seems like he said what he what he probably wanted to say was we put these all in different branches off of trunk, and then we went to integrate them. Then things got really hairy. I can't tell how how savvy he is with their model for uh, release management. Yeah, well, it's interesting too because I've I've seen products where uh, immaterial of how the branch structure happens, the, you know, there are various components to the build, and the build would be broken for literally four or five, a week, a working week. And the reason was is that various subparts would be broken during the week. And then when finally you got everything building, then, you know, they have to talk to each other and the schema changed. So you have these two products that actually can't even talk to each other. So in, in some sense, it doesn't even matter that they both build. Maybe it was something like that. I, I, you know, I just find it interesting that you have a CEO in an earnings call talking about this. And I have to wonder, is this a case of, somebody telling the development managers all along 
this isn't going to work. You can't just check everything in a trunk. I mean, I know some companies... Well, you, you, would, you would hope somebody was there. You would hope if they actually had a release engineer that they would have been screaming up and down. But at the same time, it doesn't mean anyone actually listened to him um, or yeah. her. Yeah. That's, yeah. One of those, that's one of those you could have... I mean, I've, I've been in exactly those situations where you're like, hey, this is going to end badly. You know, people are, you know, di- branches are diverging too much. We're not doing enough integration. And then when there is a difficult integration, you're not surprised, but you're still the one having to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's not like this model can't work. Salesforce actually has presented uh, at a number of events about they use a mainline model, uh, but they have a bunch of different both infrastructure uh, tools to, to support that. And they also have a very unique development culture and attitude about that. They do auto branch locking where if things fail to build, they'll automatically lock branches. So there's kind of a self-policing you know, policing loop for the development teams and and so maybe they tried to emulate that model but without the support you know of all the tools and the culture and maybe that's what it was yeah a lot of, a lot of times it comes down to tooling i mean yeah. if you don't if you don't have the right tools for the the model you've chosen you know if you're not doing continuous integration in a mainline model um so that you can detect minute i mean you're you're you know just you're doing continuous integration and continuous build perhaps and so that kind of allows you to catch big, big mistakes a lot quicker and a lot more frequently and deal with it during the day as opposed to, you know, you've developed for three days and then all of a sudden everything stopped working because two people worked on, you know, the same feature, the same branch or different components that need to talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's a little hard to tell, you know, exactly what a component, I mean, obviously they didn't mention which components they had issues, um, you know, integrating with. So, um, that, that's why I made my comment regarding continuous integration. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's 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 definitely an interesting uh, thing to hear. You know, a CEO talk at that level. Yeah, it, it's certainly my the, the first time I've ever I've ever heard a CEO talk at that level. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Seth, you you raised something uh, an announcement from Valve. Yeah. So so this is a, this happened pretty recently. So a lot of people. Uh, may or may not have known that Valve, uh, they developed the Steam platform as well as a whole host of games, uh, Team Fortress, Half-Life, um, some very popular series. Um, they have been tinkering around with the idea of a Linux port of their client. Now, they've actually had the server uh, running, Linux, running on Linux servers for ages, um, but it's a lot simpler and you're not dealing with you know, a, a graphics engine. Right. Um, so part of so what they did is they finally officially announced um, via the form of a, a blog dedicated to this um, that they have formed a new team to port their engine to Linux. Um, so some of the interesting things about their decision is everyone knew they were tinkering around, but this is the first time they said, "Look, it's official. We're going to do it." Second, uh, they've chosen Ubuntu as their distribution, which I think is great news for Ubuntu, but also kind of Linux in general, that Ubuntu has kind of said, you know what, it's mature enough, this is good, people can use this, um, and that gamers even are familiar with it. That's what most of them are running their Linux servers with. Well, and Ubuntu is very user-friendly as opposed to, you know, everyone loves CentOS for data centers, right, but nobody's writing, you know, NVIDIA's not releasing drivers that are compatible with CentOS 5 or, you know, whatever kernel that is, right? It's got that kind of momentum behind it in terms of the the client-side usage. You know, grandma can use it and also, like, (laughs) 
you know, you could, but you could have, I mean, it's not unreasonable. I have several friends who are developers who develop on Ubuntu exclusively on their laptops. Um, right. So it's got that, yeah, it's got that recognition. So they've done it on Ubuntu. And so they're, they're kind of blogging about this. And then I guess the, the most interesting bit is there was a, you know, the next blog post they had. So they decided to pick, start with one title first. So while they're porting the engine, they're using, I think what would be the most recent version of their engine, which was in Left 4 Dead 2. It's a zombie game. Um, multiplayer, you know, zombie game. Um, right. And so they they actually noted that they're getting more frames per second under OpenGL on Linux with the same hardware than they are with Windows 7 using Direct3D. Interesting. And that's huge for a number of reasons. Uh, Direct3D has almost always been the lead platform of game development studios if they're making for Windows or the Xbox 360. And a lot of time you're doing both. So... Direct3D has obviously got a lot of, you know, got a lot of momentum, and it's typically a bit faster, and there are more advanced features available. This is really yeah. news for OpenGL because it's, it's, you know, somebody's actually using it and showing that it's competitive. And now you said that they actually also worked with, uh, you know, that's been, long been the complaint with developing games on Linux is that, you know, you have to work with the kernel guys, and you have to work with the graphics driver guys, and then you have to work with the X guys maybe to make sure that stack integrates. And for better or worse, that's one thing that both Mac and Windows gives you a story for. It's all that stack is already integrated. Right. Um, so and you said that they actually worked with those various groups to kinda at least come up with a, a known configuration of the stack that they will support that works. Right. And they they they've got they've actually went the extra step to talk to NVIDIA, AMD and Intel to help perf- improve performance. And these studios are now a little bit more receptive, or these, these hardware manufacturers are a little bit more receptive to community advice. And so it, it behooves them to improve because more people will buy their hardware if they know that it you know, works on Linux. Right. And it's, you, you've kind of got that, the a community now that is more than willing to install Linux on their machines and you know, use, uh, use Linux for, as, a, as a gaming platform. Um, now, it should be noted that the, the performance difference was relatively minor. Um, this is on completely high-end high hardware. So they were getting 315 frames per second on Linux, whereas Windows is only getting 270. And then they kind of go into some of the reasons why. And, you know, it's direct 3D overhead, whereas OpenGL ha- doesn't have a particular problem. And so they're able to do a particular operation faster. So it's not Linux is destroying game performance in all cases. It's just a very isolated case. Well, so it'd not, be interesting- not to bring the fanboys down. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting to see how they, they end up. So I, I'm assuming from a, from a release engineering perspective, they'll ship these as devs. So they'll ship the Steam client. So, the, so how they do this, because they already release on OS ten as well. And that was... They were the first ones to really support both client server or sorry, you can have multiple clients. So I can I can on my MacBook Pro play Team Fortress 2 against somebody playing on Windows while we're both playing on a Linux server. And so they what they do is they release their client itself is on Windows, it's an executable, uh, you know, an EXE. On OS X, it's a you know they give the typical DMG process, but the client, the Steam client is self-updating. So it has its own internal file format. Um, so mm. They'll probably ship the Steam client itself as a deb, or put it in, I guess, the Ubuntu, like the the Launchpad store, uh, okay. and maybe distribute it through that. Uh, it's it's a free. The client itself is free. You pay for all the games, you know, via the Steam service. So it's it's a free platform, but you obviously don't have access to games unless you pay for them. We'll have to keep an eye on that. It'll be interesting to see if they end up putting it in the Ubuntu store. How that works, since that model is becoming more prevalent with 
you know, the App Store for Apple to see how the Ubuntu Store, if, if that model of distribution actually works for them. It'll be interesting to see. Well, uh, we'll be back shortly. We're going to talk about hiring next up on The Ship Show. Our topic tonight is uh, hiring in the release engineering and DevOps space. The tech market has been heating up for a few months now, and we've been starting to see, you know, the the commonly delayed hiring trend for both QA and release engineering after developers get hired and companies ramp up, and that's usually delayed in our space by a couple months. Uh, and I've gotten a bunch of requests from clients of companies looking to hire DevOps and release engineers. So we thought it'd be a great time to actually talk about how to hire the best release engineers and DevOps people. So I I thought I'd kick off that discussion by asking, you know, what do you guys look for? You know, usually this process starts where your manager comes to you with a stack of resumes and uh, says, hey, look at these resumes, or hey, I I scheduled a phone screen for you, and they give you a resume. So I wanted to start with what do you guys look for uh, when you're looking at a resume? What do you you look for? What, What do you pay attention to? What do you skim over? So my my typical my my kind of red flag issues with resumes, um, especially for there are a lot of folks who are you know they're doing IT stuff and there's there's I mean at some point it crosses over into a DevOps space and you know a lot of us have sysadmin or IT backgrounds and then we just kind of moved into release engineering and moved into DevOps. There are a lot of really bad IT resumes out there that just read like bullet points, you know, mm-hmm. like I know this version of Windows and these these are all very, very important things. But when you're dealing, when you're kind of, you're in the release engineering space or DevOps space, that stuff is boring. You assume that people know, that's that's requisite knowledge. And so I want a resume to tell me a story. I don't want it to be a series of, I have this cert, this cert, this cert, you know, I wanted to say this is what I do on a day-to-day basis. These are the kinds of projects I've done because I don't want just an IT guy. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of, you know, people who apply to jobs not really realizing what a release engineer needs to do or what a DevOps guy needs to do that makes it slightly different from, you know, help desk stuff. I call that the alphabet soup problem. And it's, you know, I always look at that and you'll see just a list of 20 acronyms. And I mean, I, we, we all know what they are, TCP, IP, and PHP, and all this stuff. But I guess I feel, when I see a resume that has the alphabet soup problem, I'm very careful to only put things on my resume that I'm conversant about. And a lot of times, I'll pick the one alphabet concoction of alphabet soup letters that I know and I will ask them about that and they're like oh yeah I used it once five years ago and and that's and that's you know I always kind of like you know well that's that's something that when you're in an interview you you should be able to to figure that out I mean if you're at this point you're applying for this type of position say you're releasing on multiple platforms well then you you kind of you know, if the person doesn't realize that, then you're gonna catch, you're gonna find out really early in the you know in the interview that they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, but yeah. sometimes sometimes with the resumes you have that problem. I would much prefer an interesting resume that says I don't know a lot, but I've done this really cool thing and this really cool thing, and I learned it along the way, than a resume that says I've got all of these certs, but I've never tried to do anything interesting. Yeah, I, I think I'd have to agree with Seth on that point. I mean, from my perspective, what I'm looking at. 
uh, resumes for Bill DevOps release engineers. You know, I'm looking for a couple of things. One, um, experience in the uh, uh, target platform. Uh, that uh, the software is being developed on, and then two, some interesting projects, uh, you know, as related to uh, you know, build DevOps release engineering. Um, you know, if I see a resume that's got like fifty, you know, different acronyms, and you know, just uh, you know, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of tools, a lot of arcane tools, or or just you know, heavy emphasis on kind of very expensive enterprise uh, commercial tools, you know, it kind of it doesn't really make the you know resume to me uh, attractive. So I, yeah. I've seen I've seen Auken said listed as a skill, and I always kind of <laughs> ch- I always chuckle. Not so much. I get what they're trying to say. I know regular expressions, and that's fine. Uh, but I always it's like I wouldn't list every Unix utility I've used as a you know I don't know. Um, I, find, I find that a lot of people, especially like like uh, embellishing their Linux experience. Um, that's you know when you read the resume and they're like oh I know I know Linux and you actually talk to them and you realize that they that means they used it once in college like an experimental <laughs> drug um, you know right. they, they they're like I had to build one project on a on a Linux server or some old Solaris machine and that's the last time I touched it um, I found that's been a problem a lot with with you know finding people and you're like oh yeah you need to know how to do this and they're like oh I haven't used MakeSense School. Right, um, right. It's like okay, that's that's great. Um, would have wish wish we'd known that earlier. Yeah. Well, so to your point, Seth, earlier you talked about I like a resume that tells a story. I think one of the things, and this is actually really hard to look at just from a resume, or to get from a resume. I want to know. You know, talking about DevOps, the developer part is certainly part of it, but the ops part, the operational part, and whether it's release engineering or DevOps, right? The fact that they understand that, yeah, you can do things in a certain way and that's fine, but I think one of the things that makes really great release engineers and really great DevOps engineers is that they think about the human factors or the scaling of machines and the scaling of the organization. They think about their context in the entire process. And there are certainly roles uh, where you just want somebody to be heads down looking at this one thing, even in release engineering, where it's like we, we hired you because you're a great makefile guy and we have a lot of makefile problems and we need someone to solve that problem long term for us and it's a long process. So we're gonna hire someone to do that. And you're gonna look for something different certainly. But if you're hiring, you know, if you're it's a startup and you're hiring one or two DevOps guys and you hire you know, someone who's who has a lot of Linux, has a lot of sysadmin, but they have never been in the you know the role that we've talked about in the past couple of shows where you're doing all that coordination that can be uh, not so much a red flag but it's it's something you have to ask yourself are you going to give them the support to either train them to be have that you know pick up that experience or are you going to shift that function to program manager or something else well that's that's I think that's so that that kind of brings up some uh, a point that I was going to raise is I've found a lot of great release engineers and a lot of great DevOps people, I mean, at some point they need to make that transition. I find that's more a transition that they choose to make, um, which, is, which is good because you have somebody who's done sysadmin stuff or maybe done light development for something and they want to take that next, you know, they want to move into that. That means they're willing to learn. I think that's something you can, you can actually gather when, you know, from the resume. And I think that's also valuable. A lot of a lot of the best help desk or people that I've worked with have made some of the best later on release engineers and DevOps people because they've dealt with a lot of like a variety of problems on a mm-hmm. variety of different platforms. They have extremely 
they're they're very quick witted when it comes to troubleshooting, and mm, you're yeah. you're still you you want that broad experience. You don't necessarily want somebody who's just like I think somebody said the the one commercial product that they <laughs> the only thing that so they've only used this one thing. Whereas you want somebody who's got you know the ability to troubleshoot anything and can apply that and, and is comfortable learning a new you know a new piece of software every other you know every other week as as a project needs it um, and that's more valuable than a, than the depth of experience in one thing. Well, what what do you, what do you guys think about you know a, a DevOps build release engineer coming from kind of a development background? I mean, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to say, well, you know, we really want. To see resumes with people who've who've uh, put some time and you know uh, in as a software engineer and, and kind of uh, uh, does that does that ever happen? <laughs> I, I don't know that I've ever met a, a release engineer or DevOps person that came from development. It's, it, I, I think they always have more mixed backgrounds than just yeah, developer. Yeah. I think I think they exist, um, but I think it's rare. It's like they're the albino version, like. Because in my experience, the 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 DevOps. okay, we're we're gonna put a call out on Twitter. If you're we're a developer and you moved into DevOps or release engineering, we want you to tweet us at Ship Show Podcast. But Seth, you were saying no. That's that's I mean that because they're much. I mean, my experience as well has been I came from being a sysadmin, or you know doing doing IT stuff into release engineering, and then I went from release engineering to more DevOps things. Even though most of the time it was pretty similar work. Most of the people I know were operations folks. Um, there are some, I do, I actually have met a few who did go from the development side, um, but they've always been stronger developers and it, and it shows in the kinds of work they do. They still may be using Chef, you know, and they still may be the one in charge of builds, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the ones picking server stuff. They may have dedicated operations people for that. Well, so Yusuf, to your point, I think one thing that, one theme I've seen is, and again, this goes back to the dev part of DevOps, is being able to at least read code, read Java-like code, C++-like code, JavaScript, you know, read it and have a sense of what are the operators, what, you know, what's going on. I've actually worked, I've seen release engineers that when they look at a failed build, the output of a compiler failure, they don't actually have a sense of even really what to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, and, think, and, I think that's a problem, though, Paul. I mean, you it, know, it, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's the type of thing that sort of uh, outlines how you know, strong of a, of a troubleshooter they are. And, and, and you know, kind of going back to what Seth said about um, help desk, people making the best release engineers, I totally agree with that. Mainly because of the type of stuff that a help desk person gets thrown at. You know, you kind of have that, that really strong troubleshooting background. And, you know... To me, it would be a lot easier to get you know somebody uh, like a helpless type person to become a really solid build release engineer to, and and maybe kind of coach them on on you know be, being a better coder and such. So yeah, that that troubleshooting, debugging kind of aspect, and that's kind of why I brought up the, the question. And I, I I do think that you know as a release engineer, you have to have some kind of a development background. Maybe not as a full time software engineer, but I think that the you have to have that skill set. I think it's yeah. It's required. it's it's actually I've seen it with. I had a friend as who was became a release engineer, and I was hired because we had had a similar background. He was kind of a proof of concept, and as people saw this, and and we both had a help desk background, supporting both Linux and Windows, and sometimes OS ten, and so it was kind of a a thing where I think he and I have, have stated before. You know, we can look at 
the output of a build failure like C code or, or Java, and we're able to find the error and find out what's wrong and point somebody in the right direction, even though we may not be, you know, neither one of us may be fluid coders. But right. it's, a, it's a different skill set. I know developers, when they see a compiler, error, don't know what to do. So sometimes... Well, if, it's, if it's C++ and templates, you can't blame them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's an obscure compiler, and so you, right. you know more about the tooling. You don't care about the code. You're like, you need to make this go away. Yeah. Um, you're the developer, but I'm going to show you where it is and, and hopefully help you and alert you to what changes were made that may have tipped this particular. So you're helping other people debug their code. So let me, let me ask you guys this. So after you moved, you know, you've looked at the resume and moved on, like, how do you like to conduct an interview? What, do you, what, do you, what, question, what are your favorite questions? What's your favorite structure for the interview? So I've had really good experience with studios and corporations that do culture first. Um, which I think is a big deal. A lot of people overlook. My most recent interview, I actually had multiple organizations that I already had an extreme desire to work for um, because of perhaps the projects or whatever they're doing, but also because of how they interviewed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they started off with culture. They made it clear that you know, if you're not going to fit the culture, then your technical experience doesn't really matter. We don't want to hire a really competent person who won't fit in with the organization rather hire maybe a slightly less you know technically competent person but somebody who would you know flourish in this particular environment and so i like to start with culture first and then kind of and then move you know as the interviews progress if they're multiple or f- different phone screens start there and then if they make it past those hurdles you know then move on to the technical thing cuz it's a lot easier to kind of disqualify somebody once you've got the technical but Sometimes maybe they're better, you know, you can, you can find out more about the person that way as opposed right. to just their, whatever their resume says. Do you think uh, one or two people in an interview or more? Well, I, I actually think that, uh, you know, you, you should have some sort of a one-on-one. Uh, you know, again, it depends on your, on your organizational structure. Um, one thing I like to do is to bring in a developer and somebody from QA um, to, uh, to kind of, you know, ask questions. And, and it kind of helps... Um, flush out some of those culture type questions to, to to see you know kind of how this release engineer works with with other other roles because it, it is a cross functional role and I, I think it's important that you know they don't have a chip on their shoulders with regards to you know certain groups right that's right. that's really I actually I completely agree that's super super important I I was fortunate to be interviewed by the lead QA engineer as well as one of the programmers at a former position and the Q and A guy got to a point where it was just like, he's like, you already know all the answers to, like, I can't stump you. You obviously have done this before. He just kind of left. He's like, he's good. Like, and then just walked out. And I, that's, I think that's really to have QA, especially if you have somebody in that cross-functional position, you can weed out people really quickly. I've seen some QA guys just immediately disqualify someone. They're like, they don't know what they're talking about. We need yeah. to move on. So, you know, it's interesting, Yusuf, you said one, one-on-ones. I actually used to think that one-on-one interviews were better, but my experience actually has generally, in the last couple times I've done this, been interviews with two people. And both interviewing and being interviewed, I think I actually like two people better. And the reason for that is I like – first, I, I like that you actually have a dynamic of more than just one-on-one. And obviously, you know, the hiring manager, you're going to have a one-on-one with that person. But I, I like – I know as an interviewer, after the fact – I heard the person say something, and when I'm discussing it with the other person that I was interviewing with, they heard something else, 
and and sometimes I heard it wrong or I I heard I had the wrong context for what they said and I've had my opinion changed a couple of times just by kind of having in some sense a witness to the conversation that I can actually review the entire interview with so I actually shifted to I think you know having another person there is actually can be good to either self-check my own views or correct them with someone else who was there. I've I've seen uh, in in past game studios where you're not you're interviewed by something on the order of five or six people at once. Um, no, not necessarily at once throughout the day. For perhaps. Okay. Um, I mean, sometimes you know you have like you may have a portion of the interview where you're in the room with six people and they throw like a a game design problem at you. Right. I one of the ones I did was a uh, I had somebody you know they were clearly having a branching problem and they asked me how I would branch it and because I had past experience I just you know went to the whiteboard and I had I think a program manager a developer and a QA guy and it, having that having those multiple people and then different people from different departments especially with as you have mentioned when you're dealing with complex cross functional teams maybe you want them to interview with your web team and your client team and your server team. Mm. Because they'll be interacting with all of them, um, so I've seen when when you said your opinion had been changed, where at the end of the day you get everyone in a conference room, and you have you know seven different people say, oh, "I saw this and I saw that," and you get that same effect. Sometimes it's more important, depending again, depending on the size of your organization, it, but at least two is good. Yeah, I would always if you can get more, it's good to have more. What do you guys think on length? Mm-hmm. Length of interview? Yeah, length of the interview. I mean. Uh, you know, it's kind of tricky. I'm I'm kind of more in favor of you know no more than than two to three hours, and if you need more time, bring them in for a second interview because things um, I think once they go past the four hour mark, they start to get a little annoying. To be honest with you, yeah. But even one on so individual interviews, and the reason I ask is I see a lot of places schedule half hour, forty five minute interviews, and they're always I'm always crammed for time. I I, I think an hour, but but that seems to be. Yeah. I, I like an hour to an hour and a half, I think, yeah. you know, six, yeah. 60 to 90 minutes. And especially for a phone screen, I don't think, no matter how long the, the conversation is, should never be more than 90 minutes. At that no. point, you know, you've been on the phone for a long time. You should, you should always cut that off. Um, it's funny. I've actually had phone screens that go 10 minutes. I mean, literally, they, I ask all the questions. And what's interesting is, is that's the sign of a bad phone screen because the person actually has nothing to say nothing to elaborate on on the questions it's just like did you do this yes well what do you think about it well i liked it or i didn't like it yeah, like, well, yeah. You, know. you have no interest in this you're just you know you're spout yeah. it's kind of like you're you're reciting or regurgitating right. i was gonna say one of my sometimes you can ask a really easy question and then immediately disqualify somebody sometimes i've seen uh like simple questions like how much bandwidth do you think an office that does this kind of work should need on a day-to-day basis? Oh, that's a good one. So wh- one mm-hmm. of my simple, very simple questions, and it was actually a question that I was asked for my first internship because I said I knew Linux, and, they, and the person asked me, how do you change the name servers on a Linux machine? And anybody who will know exactly the answer to that, but you'd be surprised how many people that say they have certifications or they've used it in a, you know, in a QA lab or a release engineering lab, they don't actually... It's like, well, I go to the control panel and I look right. for it. Now it's like, well, okay, assume there's no control panel. And then it's like, <laughs> I don't know. So I wanted to ask both of you, what is one of your favorite interview questions to ask? Well, actually, one of the things that I do is um, that there's a website, and I, I don't really remember the, uh, uh, the name of the website right now, but what they do is they, they actually provide um, 
you know, software for kind of code analysis. And so one of the things that they do is um, they, they have a snippet of code and they say, well, figure out where the bug is. And I, I actually like to kind of, you know, get a printout of that uh, snippet of code and then um, sort of show it to them and say, you know, hey, you know, take a couple minutes to, to think about what the issue with this particular code is and, you know, feel free to whiteboard. And it, it you know, kind of helps me see how that particular person goes through uh, not, not just uh, analyzing the code, but how good they are at communicating what the issue is. Because, um, you know, and, and some folks that I've interviewed do use the whiteboard. Some of them um, just sit there and um, write um, with, with a pen and paper, and some of them don't do anything at all. But, uh, it, it, you know, it's kind of a little, a, a bit of a brain teaser. Um, and the, like I said, I can't remember what the name of the website is, but they, they have different varying types of bugs. Um, some of them are, are pretty um, uh, long, but some of them are like, you know, for example, um, having a nested um, for loop and another for loop and you're using um, the same loop control variable um, in both mm-hmm. uh, for loops, mm-hmm. so stuff like that. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing about that will also tell you I've had, we, we used to do that where we would give them code that we knew how to bug in it and you'd have them look at the code and they'd say there's not a bug in it. And it's interesting to me how adamant some people, you know, I, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm telling you there's a bug. Right. And, and I'm asserting that's true. And I've had people tell me three or four times after they've whiteboarded it and written notes and written notes on the paper, there's no bug. And on the fifth time, they'll say, oh, yeah, this is wrong. And that is always a big yellow flag for me because it's like I'm, I'm telling you, I'm giving what? you information and, you know. I think that's pretty easy if you make it clear um, at the beginning. Be like, I am giving you a problem. There is a bug in it. You know, yeah, but that's it, the thing. That's the thing. I've had people argue with me. Oh, well, then, then I, but you yeah. know, that's good data, right? That's that's yeah, good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a commu- that reveals a communication problem instantly. They don't believe there's a problem, and sometimes you just don't want to believe there's a problem, right. um, and that's bad. Um, I always believe everything's broken, and if <laughs> I only believe I only believe that it is not until I can assert that it is true. Spoken like a true release engineer. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's so, always broken all the time. Exactly. Uh, so what do you like to ask, Seth? Um, so one of my favorites to, to ask and to be asked is, is the, the kind of the, the end-to-end web page experience. Uh, like, so oh. tell, tell me in, in, in as, much, as much detail resolution or as little as you desire, when you go to a web page, so you type google.com into your browser window and you hit enter, and that is, oh, oh, it's always one of my favorite because I love that question. I love answering that question. Right. Because well, and you'll see exactly, it's very, it's a, I, love, I love those types of questions because it's such a simple question, but it identifies exactly their strengths because do they talk about TCP packets? Do they talk about DNS lookup? Do they talk about the DOM and what happened, you know? Exactly. And that's, I found that a lot of times that gives somebody an advantage to flex where their experience is very clearly. Um, so that when they, they maybe say, oh, they start, they, maybe they talk about binds first for DNS, or maybe they talk about, as you, uh, one of my favorites is when they get into the DOM, and then you're, you start to see where their experience is, because a lot of people don't even mention the DOM. when the, They're like, and it, then it gets to your browser, and then it's done. And right. I was like, well, there are different rendering engines and different, and so it, it gives people a, a great uh, chance to flex what they do know. Right, right. One of my favorite questions to ask is, you know, we have these requirements, design a branching model. And I, and I say, you can ask me any questions you want. If there's anything that's not clear, feel free to ask, you know, and then, of course, the big show your work, right? And so we'll whiteboard out a branching model. And then we talk about 
you know, what are pros and cons? And one of the biggest things that I think is important is I don't so much care necessarily what you say about a particular thing. It's that I want you to have an opinion. I don't even have to agree with you, but I find a lot of people you know, we'll say, well, what, you know, you'll ask, well, what do you think of this particular tool? And they'll say, well, I don't know. I just used it at my last job. And it's like, well, if you've used it at the last job, and I believe that you have, right, because they'll talk conversantly about the tool, did you like it? Would you use it here? Would, would you sell it to your friends and family if they were all release engineers, you know? And that's that, that kind of energy, I think, is very important in terms of, you know, are they happy doing this kind of work? Do they have opinions about the state of the art of DevOps and release engineering? Or are they just kind of this is for them. Just they come in and they do their stuff and they go home. And well, Paul, and- yeah, that's, that's a that's I mean that's a really great point, and I I want to like echo that sentiment. Some I've I've went into an interview in that situation where somebody asked me a question that was loaded. It was an opinion question, right? Um, and I think they asked me they're like, "How do you feel about Pearl?" Um, which <laughs> that is a great if you want to if you want to really see if somebody's got an opinion, ask them about Pearl because. <laughs> Because if they have no opinion, then they've never used it. Right. And if they do have an opinion, it's either it's it's a polar, it's a very polarizing question. In this this case, I, I don't have the nicest things to always say about Pearl. Right. I think it's neat, but I would never want to wish it on another human being to maintain. And so it, I wouldn't want to wish it on myself to maintain. Exactly. I, I would just own code. And they said they said, well, a lot of our you know a lot of things. I was like, well, that sucks for you. Like I, I just you know in a. In, <laughs> And this is an interview where I ostensibly want the job, but that's I find like you said that asking those questions like you know which revision control do you do you, what are the advantages of one over the other or something like that where if you don't have an opinion I'd actually I'd rather take somebody less experienced who has you know not necessarily a passionate opinion but an opinion nonetheless. Well, and actually I forgot one of my favorite questions at the end is do you have any questions for me because you will get a lot of insight into what questions you get asked. Yeah, uh, and. I've gotten asked everything from, do you get free food on which days? Or, you know, do you, you know, what are the vacation? It's like, I don't, you know, those are different things. That's not what we're here. Two actually really interesting questions about what do you think your release engineering problems are or how does release engineering fit in your organization? So I actually think the types of questions you get asked when you ask that question are really important. I think the, I think the most, I think one of my favorite ones to ask back um, typically is what are your build times? Oh, that's a good um, you, one. you catch you sometimes catch people that are like oh and they sometimes they don't want to tell you because they're embarrassed um, <laughs> they're you know sometimes I've, I've asked them they're like they're too long which is why we're hiring you yeah. um, you know so you can kind of you can kind of get some insight into what exactly they need because I found I found positions where I asked them a question back and I'm like how much you know how much this is going to be firefighting and how much development am I actually going to do or how much oh. operations do I get to do right. I mean do I get to touch the servers or do I have to like put in a ticket for somebody else okay. and so kind of sometimes organizational structure even though it's boring can give you as the interviewee a lot better idea of like what you're stepping into sometimes they're like hey it's totally you know it's it's green pastures we haven't built anything and those for me I like knowing that I'm like okay cool then I get to build infrastructure yeah. and I get to I get to do it on my terms as opposed to dealing with inheriting a mess. Um, yeah. and, and, and that's a really good question to ask back the, the firefighting bit because I don't mind firefighting, but it does mean that if it, it's going to be firefighting, then I'm going to start asking more pointed questions about, well, you know, are there fire hydrants around to help me? Do I have fire trucks with, you know, Right, right. Do, kinda, do I have tools to, to help right. me? Right, or is it just me with a bucket of water, you know? Uh. 
Right. Uh, I, I actually like to ask uh, how often they roll back code. Oh, that's and I, and I find that uh, some people, you know, actually go on the defensive when I ask that question. Um, mainly, mainly because I, I, I guess that they think that I'm, I'm criticizing them, but it, it, it really isn't. It's more I'm interested. What's in the procedure? And yeah, right. And it's not. It's not so much. You know, well, we've rolled back code 150, you know, times in the last. You know, eighteen months. It's more, you know, an average rate. Like you know, we have a a twenty percent or a thirty percent, whatever um, rollback policy or not policy. Well, and did, do they even know that statistic? Right. Right. Do they have the metrics? That's yeah. I was going to just bring up the same thing. Do yeah. they? Do they know? Because yeah. if they don't know, then maybe maybe you can add some value there. Yeah. 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 Well, so they always say hindsight's twenty twenty. I thought it would be interesting for each of us to tell a story that is some. Of a red flag that we should have known but didn't catch during the interview. So, Yusuf, let's start with you. Do you have a, a red flag story? Yeah, I, I, I've got an interesting story. So, uh, I was um, interviewing a guy, um, and uh, you know, the, the, the first thing that kind of uh, uh, struck me was um, he, he kind of offhandedly made a, a comment stating, uh, or I had asked him a question about just release engineering and build engineering in general, he made a comment saying, well, it, it's pretty much the same at every company. You know, it, uh, re- release engineering, is, it, it's not a difficult thing to do. It's just kind of, you just do it. <laughs> I thought it was, was really odd. And, and then he kind of went on to say how, you know, you, you, you kind of just, you go in and, you know, you, you, you start enforcing rules with your developers. And, um, I, you know, so a couple words stand out uh, just for me, like as in why can't you just X, just as a four-letter word in my book for release engineering. But also he said enforce rules. On, on Obviously developers. he's never dealt with dealt with developers before. Um, that clearly shows me that he just like – But I mean from a cultural, from a cultural yeah. perspective, the way – thinking about it as right. the way that I'm going to interact with these other teams is you know, police officer or – Yes, enforcer, right? Judiciously, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, but sometimes that can. I, I actually counter. Sometimes that can be good uh, to get an interview. If, if, but only if they demonstrate a depth of knowledge for the the topic, where they're like, "Oh no, we need to enforce this and this." Understanding well, a problem is one thing. I, I think know. it's it's a cultural thing, right? It, so I've seen huge environments where you've got a thousand engineers and you're hiring someone whose job it's going to be to go around and chase up after broken builds. So they're basically doing that enforcement role. And that's fine if they describe it that way. But the thing that, that, that then I would want to know is, do you go around with a baseball bat or do you go around with you know, a level head trying to solve the problem? Well, it that depends on the developer. Yeah, that's yeah, touche. So it's interesting you mentioned that, Paul, because I, you know, with this particular individual, I, I actually let them continue to talk. And, and then I sort of said, well, you know, what do you do when you know, you have a developer that, that just doesn't want to follow the code line policy. And he said, well, the first thing I do is I go to their manager, you know, and, and, I, and I, I got them to see if they can get uh, written up. Because if they're not following the code line policy, then, you know, that's almost grounds for termination. Wow. <laughs> I just thought that's, it was, wow. wow that's, that's, wow. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm glad I don't work with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I thought it was just very interesting to, uh, to, to hear uh, a yeah. release engineering you know, candidate to, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that says it sounds that. Like, that it sounds like you're, the, the moral of the story there is, is pay attention to those keywords yeah. and yeah. how they answer. Seth, do you have a red flag story? Um, I've, as, as an interviewee, um, I've, I've had a few where people 
people talk to me and, and it's the, the red flag for me typically is, is the actual person interviewing me. It's, there's just a, just how they, how they speak. So one of, one of my ones was the person was saying it was clear that they were not actually a person. They were, they were just doing as many hire, they were hiring people with just certain words in their, you know, LinkedIn profile. Oh, uh-huh. And they're like, so tell me, uh, I'm I, like, for me, it's like, well, I'm not very familiar with de- what DevOps does. Um, could you tell me? Now, that could be a, a trick question. You know, it's somebody, it could be somebody like feigning knowledge, but most of the time it's somebody who's hiring for a role that they're not even sure, whether they be a recruiter or whether they just be, you know, the, the HR person, and they don't really know what you do. And that, to me, is a red flag for the company. They obviously don't care about the DevOps that they're hiring or the release engineers that they're hiring, because if they did, they'd actually have somebody who knew what they were talking about actually interviewing me. Right. Now, there are certain cases where, you know, maybe they just didn't have somebody available that day and they had the HR person call or, you know, their, their recruiting manager. But that's still, that indicates to me a kind of, they more want a head than they want the right person. And they're, not, they're willing to filter them out later just because they have the bandwidth to do. So I prefer to, on the first interview, talk to somebody who actually, you know, is working directly with the role right. or is, you know, or, or knows exactly what they want. If they don't, then I'm really, I'm not interested. I don't have time, you know, to necessarily vet you out. That should be, you should be doing it the other way a lot of times. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, one of my uh, actually, this is a red flag story. We were interviewing an individual, and you know, we had the stand, standard five interviews for an hour or whatever it was. You know, so it was expected to run a day. And I think when we were done, uh, we ended up interviewing this guy for twelve hours across two different days. And the reason that happened is that this particular person was very good at conversation. They talked a lot and they were very good at getting you off on some tangent that steered you towards what they knew every single question. And so an hour long interview actually, and this is why it went over a couple of days and 12 hours, an hour long interview to get the information you would need would take like a couple of hours. What was interesting about that is you would come out of the interview. I remember coming out of the interview thinking, God, this guy's great. And then I would sit down and review my notes, and then I'd realize he didn't actually answer any, any one of the questions I actually asked. He was able to steer me off to something every single time. We ended up hiring this person, and I remember having to explain branches to a release engineer. I remember having to explain – I spent 45 minutes explaining virtual machines, and the – you know, what it was and how it, you know, like very high level, like this is a VM and right. And this person still didn't get it. That's, that's, that's scary. Well, what's interesting to me about that is that over time it became apparent that five minute, you know, conversations that should be five minutes has the state of the release took a half hour. Every conversation with this person that should have been a simple yes or no, or here's a, I'm asking you a technical question with an objectively correct or incorrect answer, right? You should be able to answer that. Turned into a factor of six to 10 in terms of time to have that conversation. And at the end of it, you really didn't even, you still weren't on the same page. My lesson learned there is now, if I, I, I'm more of a hard ass in interviews. If I didn't get the answer to the question I asked, I will actually point out, you know, 
okay, but I asked you this, and I won't let it, let it go for a half hour. If an answer takes longer than about five minutes, I'll actually say, okay, that's not. I'll stop them. And I didn't do that, and and it was it was a yeah. Sometimes painful. sometimes you learn you learn to interview better because of I mean those those red flags are always great because they teach you not as an interviewer to interview better um, and yeah. to be you know sometimes you do need to be a hard ass. I mean people yeah. can go on as you said go on like that and. And you feel great. Uh, yeah. Know, in that case, I felt great about the answer it, I got. And then I thought about it and I was like, I didn't actually get an answer. It's so. like they, they might be a great drinking buddy, but that doesn't necessarily mean they would be a great release engineer. And so sometimes that's okay. Be like, hey, you were great to talk to, but you really didn't know anything. So sorry. And, and really what you want at the end of the day is a great drinking buddy and a great release engineer. Exactly. All right. Well, we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. Uh, so for our last segment of the evening, we're going to take a look at a new tool uh, that I was recently introduced to on Twitter, of all places. It's called ACK, and it's not what you think it would be. I thought it was some kind of networking TCP thing. But ACK is a better grep, and it's actually, that's its website is better than grep.com. And it's a utility that's used for pattern matching, but it's specifically targeted towards source code. And I was a little skeptical at first. You know, I, I installed it. There, there are packages for it. It's on CPAN. I was a little skeptical that, it, you know, it would be useful. I mean, we can all write a grep line and then, you know, grep something and then do, you know, find to find the right files. Uh, and I realized after using it a couple times, it's really nice. And so it has a bunch of built-in features that are specific to source code searches. So it'll ignore core dumps and editor backups. It'll do recursive by default. So if you're in a source tree, you can just do ACK. And, and one of the great examples they give is if you type ACK open to find all of the calls to open, it'll print out a nice color-coded every file and every you know place where the, the you have a call to open. Whereas if you type grep open, it'll just you know grep for it in standard uh, our standard. So that's a great example of ACK when you're searching for stuff in a source tree. It's just a better tool for that particular purpose. The other thing I really like about it, it is in Perl, and, and we kind of made some fun of Perl earlier. Uh, in fact, Yusuf, we were laughing about that at the break. As long as I don't have to maintain it, it's cool. Um, uh, but it does give uh, you all of the Perl regular expressions. So sometimes I know I've run into problems with grep or egrep where I have to remember, do I want egrep or grep? And I'm so used to typing grep. ACK is just great for that kind of stuff. It has a bunch of command line switches. Most of the, the grep arguments are available under ACK. And so, yeah, I, I have especially found it useful when I'm doing for clients, when I'm becoming familiar with their source trees and I want to find particular things very quickly. Uh, ACK has actually replaced my grep usage just because it, it uh, works better for that purpose. Have you guys had a chance to take a look at this tool at all or heard of it before? So, so I, I, I think somebody mentioned it to me. I, I like the idea, just and I, you know, I have to. That this means I have to say something good about Perl. Um, but one of the things that's good about it is its regular expression handling. Like that is that is kind of Perl's deal. Yeah. Um, it's really good at. So not only using this, and then you know we all like using grep, and we all like using you know find, but ACK kind of lets you do both of them in a very easy non-arcane syntax. 
that is, I think, I think almost arguably easier to remember than like, you know, every time I want to, you know, instead of creating aliases for everything, just have a tool that understands that I'm going to want to do recursive by default. And sometimes that's, that's just nice to have somebody who's already, who's done exactly that all well, the years of their life. And then comes along and is like, here, you know what, let's just do it. There's a better way. Right. Well, um, so it's interesting, the recursive part, the part that is most annoying Subversion has fixed part of this, but if you're working with older Subversion repositories, if you do grep-r, you're going to get the you know a copy of the head revision that Subversion stores in its .svn directory. Mm-hmm. Get all of those in the results. ACK will strip those out. The other thing that you mentioned was with we all know how to construct a fine line to find the certain files. ACK understands file types, so you can actually do... Uh, if you have Java files uh, and you have a, a bunch of JSP and you, you want to find the JSPs but not the Java, you can do dash dash JSP and it'll just find the JSPs. In the- what? Yeah, I actually saw that and I actually like how they have, they also, they have a, a syntax for no. So you can strip out conversely. So you want to search a big tree for something, but you're like, hey, I know it's going to show up in all the Python files, but I just, let's ignore those. I, I like that it has the, it's, you know, it has the negation as well as, uh, as well as being able to find those file types. And I think actually it does things like, let me check that. Yeah. It, I think it'll ignore PYCs. So if you have in the Python case, if you have a language that compiles down to bytecode, cause sometimes if you're searching for a string, it'll be in the bytecode, right? right. It'll, it'll ignore all that stuff. Well, there's, yeah, I like they have a no, you know, a no binary. Cause I can see like, Oh, I know this is going to show up in here, but just don't, don't even bother to search binaries. It's it's a very it, it allows you to do some things that you know how to do, but you always have to look at you know you have to man like the find page or you have to you know look at the grep man pages again, and that's not always fun. Yeah, it's funny. One of the things they say is ACK is shorter to type than grep. They say it's sort of a joke, but sort of not because you type you know if you're sitting there searching for trees, it's one character stroke. So an ACK is actually one hand too, I think. Right? No, it's two. no no two hands, unfortunately. But it but I I can see the because almost always, I almost always want grep recursive. Now, I could alias it, but man, it's a lot easier to just have something like ACK. And I'm probably going to try this out now for, for my own use. Because I'm just tired of, I'm tired of having to construct a find pipe to grep. You know, and then you've, you, next thing you know, you've got XARGs in there. And then it's, it's then just, a whole yeah. thing and it just blows up. Yeah, and it's a lot more complicated than if you had a tool that understood the kind of intricacies of those problems and then just takes the right option or the you know the 99 percentile option and just runs with that instead of trying to be like well we're not going to tell you what to do we're going to give you all of these different command line options that you're never going to learn um so uh one note i know uh, it's in perl as you mentioned just it's named ack it's not ack.pl so just forget that it's perl <laughs> that's i like that yeah just forget all right, so programming note, uh, we've been asked a bunch about where's your iTunes feed that we can subscribe to. We are working on it. In fact, I'm hoping that it will be up for this particular show. We we just need to finish up some of the – actually, I'll be honest. We're look, I'm trying to find a picture to go for the podcast, and I have an idea, but do you know how hard it is to find box software these days? So I'll be taking a picture of that. We'll have that up. We also have the, the regular feed at the website that you can subscribe to. But if you're an iTunes person, which I know many people are, uh, and in fact, uh, I, I listen to a bunch of podcasts on iTunes myself, uh, we're getting that set up. So we'll 
post when that's ready to go. We're also, as I mentioned last time, we're getting interviews scheduled. We're going to have some guests on the show. It'll be great. Uh, and we'll have post more information about that when we have those completely set up. But we're getting those set up right now. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or stories of your own you'd like to share on our topic of hiring tonight, shoot us a tweet at Ship Show Podcast or send us your own red flag stories at crew at theshipshow.com. You can also always send us feedback and topics you think we should be covering on the podcast as well. Uh, so from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. And from Austin, Texas, this is Seth Thomas signing off. From all of us at The Ship Show, keep those builds green, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. So got to learn to